0: Any of my, my VPs, if I said, well, what? why don't you become the CEO of the company? And if they said, yeah, I think I should do it, I immediately distrust them. And here's why.
1: Welcome back to today's episode of The Leadership. And I've had such an amazing conversation with today's guest. He went from being a figure stater to building an eight-figure Company that he bootstrapped. It was a company that VCs laughed at, and they called a lifestyle business. That is not a good thing. That company that has over hundred people operating in about forty-three different countries with no office whatsoever. This is someone who described himself as a laser person at his core, which I did not believe for a minute. But that mantra is actually one of the things that caused him and his co-founder to build out the software for his company, Time Doctor, and the sister site, Stuff.com. They don't have any coding experience. They don't have any background in tech, but yet they build up this organization. He is also the co-founder of the Running Remote Conference, which is the world's largest remote work conference and community. He's someone who, when it comes to remote work, has been doing this for 12 plus years. So it's not a surprise to find out that when it comes to talking about remote work, Forbes Inc., Mashable, TechCrunch, Fast Company Wide. You name the major journal publication, they want to talk to him because he is the man in the know. Liam Martin is my guest today. And on today's podcast, we talk about self awareness, recognizing when you need to let go. Would you rather own your business or run your business? It was a really, really good question. Then we talked about how much is enough, knowing when to kind of step back and step away, as well as as you can imagine. Remote work, we need to delve into that. That's something that's close to my heart. That's one, one of the areas we focus on at Mindset Shift. And as well as the industrial revolution shift, spotting trends and being early, why that's super important. Why some people are just born to be entrepreneurs and struggle to work for people. And we delve into remote work a lot more around building a culture, gaining visibility, and how you can do that when you are not in an office space. Talk about being mindful of people who say yes to him and people who say no to him and how that links to distrust, power grabs. I don't want to talk too much around that. Ego came up time and time ago. Ego, self-awareness, ego, self-awareness, as well as being able to know when you're listening to win, listening to fix, listening to learn. We talked about one of the values of this organization value number three my memory says from around, called re- the reality distortion field and why that is something you need both on a personal level and a professional level trust anonymous surveys and so much more let's drop into today's episode with Liam Martin which I know you're going to enjoy so just chill relax and take it all in How are you doing, Liam?
0: I'm doing great.
1: How are you doing? I am. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I've had a lot of people on this podcast from completely different backgrounds. But with you, you are the first person I've had whose background, especially teenagers, started off as a figure skater. Yeah, and uh, doing your homework. <laughs> <gig>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm always intrigued by the backstory because for me, it, there's a lot of things that we go through from our young years of the ways that we dream or don't dream that actually sure. propel us. So I'm always fascinated. At, wait, what's the come up like? So what is it like, young Canadian kid, hockey, figure skating?
0: So around the age of 13 years old, you live in Canada, you've got to do one of two things. You've either got to play hockey or figure skate. And around 13... I really wanted to kind of hang out with the girls with the short little skirts, and that was a lot more exciting to me. Plus, about 50% of guys in that sport were gay, so my numbers were really good. Like It was very, very easy for me to have a lot of fun throughout those years of my life. and I went that direction. I ended up competing pretty competitively, ended up making it to nationals one year, was focusing on Worlds and Olympics. And I ended up breaking my kneecap at the national championships and was completely out of the game. So in Canada, you can get carded as an athlete. So you get about $20,000 a year as like a government subsidy, once you get up to a certain level for Olympic competition. And it wasn't that much money, but it did keep me alive on top of me bartending and a bunch of other things. But when I broke my kneecap, all that cash got pulled. And that was a very difficult time for me because I really had to reimagine myself. And so about a year later, I ended up getting led into university. And I didn't have a high school diploma because I was being taught through the Olympic training program. And it was just a bunch of private tutors. So I didn't actually have a high school diploma. And I had a lot of insecurities towards that. Wow! But the big advantage of that was when I went into university, because at 13, 14 years old, I was training eight, nine hours a day. Like I left home at 15 and, and started working with the Olympic training programs that would go from city to city every year. And so I gained a lot of independence and I kind of got all of my crazies out during that period of my life. So when it got to the point in which I could go to university two years later than everyone else, I applied the same methodology that I had applied in sports, which was I studied eight hours a day every day outside of my lectures and killed it. I got a 4.0 GPA, went on to grad school, and that's actually where I ended up dropping out of grad school. Maybe that's a completely separate story. Yeah, it's probably the same story because it all actually connects. I was teaching at McGill University. I ended up with 300 students. I ended up with less than 200 at the end of the semester and the worst academic reviews in the history of the department was not very good. And I remember walking into my supervisor's office and I said, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, no, you are not. (laughs) And then I said, so he was a pragmatist, Morton Weinfeld, super smart guy. So I said, what do you think I should do? And he's like, well, you got to get pretty good at this teaching thing over the next t- 10 to 20 years before you get to do anything fun. So six weeks later, I threw a master's thesis under his door. I was out into the real world and uh, started an online tutoring company, which was my very first business, first business that yeah. was that was remote.
1: It's crazy listening to you actually just go through that that journey in that period because young kid, 13 year old, 13 to like even 18, those years, I mean, training, that long, that many hours, you would think that, you know what, do you really have a life? Like, you're supposed to out there having fun, doing whatever you need to do.
0: So with the the trainers that you get, you get like all these personal trainers and all that kind of stuff. I was exercising and working out so much that I was losing body weight. So I was down to like 5% body fat, which is like Bruce Lee level. Leanness. I was super, super lean. And they were trying to bulk me up. And I remember eating like eight meals a day. And I just remember at one point thinking to myself, why am I doing this? Like, this is. And, but I have those short moments of like pause. Oh, why am I doing this? Because actually, and, and I was thinking about this as I've been on vacation over the last 10 days, I haven't been checking my email or my dashboards for 10 days. I get really unhappy when I don't have anything big to do with my life. So. I had a vacation about five years ago, and I forgot that I hated that vacation. And my wife isn't here. And I also don't like this vacation, to be honest with you. I feel like I'm doing nothing. I feel like I'm sitting on my hands. Three days was probably the max that I could take. I think I'm more kind of like a weekend vacation guy where I'll just go out, hang out in Lisbon for three days, you know, go check out the city, and then be back to work on Monday. So if I don't have a vision, a direction, a focus, I get pretty bored pretty quickly.
1: So then how do you, having that kind of mentality, which has been there from those days, when you found out that, that Olympic dream that you had wasn't going to happen and you eventually pivoted to, to go to college, what was that like for you then, making that transition for you? Because at that point in time, you didn't have a mission. That mission was, was out the window. Yeah.
0: Very, very difficult. Uh, you know, that 5% body fat turned into 15% body fat within nine months. Like it was, I just completely melted and imploded in on myself and was directionless and didn't really know what I wanted to do next. I remember my mother said like, listen, you've got to either get a job, you've got to go to school or not live here. You have those three options. And so I went to school to be able to to still have a place to stay. But I think it's just, and it's probably a particular personality type. I'm not much for looking at like the Myers-Briggs protocols and all those types of things. But just my focus on a goal is how I really reinforce my productivity. And if I'm not focused on a goal, uh, I get very distracted. I get very bored, probably depressed over an extended amount of time. I remember I sold my first company in my mid twenties and I bought a really big flat screen TV and a leather couch as a reward. And I watched TV for two weeks and then I started the next company because I just recognized this is in no way what I want in my life. Just sitting there slowly kind of like directionless, I think is probably the best, the best way to be able to say it. The climb is sometimes the most exciting part. And once you get to the summit, then you get a little bit depressed and you got to get the next, exactly. You've got to have the next mountain in your head when you get to that first summit, because if you don't, you might fall in between those two.
1: What are the, the major lessons you learned from having that first business you did?
0: The big one was recognize what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Most entrepreneurs have this really interesting problem, which is they have to turn nothing into something. There's a great book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One on this subject. So you have nothing and now you have something. Something exists. Someone pays you money for some type of product or service. That process is actually really, really difficult. It requires a lot of planning and a type of activity that is really good for a brain like mine. However, when you want to go from one to a hundred, you need someone like, well, you need an executive. You need someone who can actually scale your organization and you need to be able to change your mindset from an entrepreneur to an executive. And I'm generally much better in the entrepreneur role than the executive role. I play in both spaces, but if you told me, would you like to build a company from 10 million to hundred million or zero to 10 million? I would tell you every day of the week, zero to 10. Like that would be way more fun for me than going from 10 to hundred million. And I haven't done hundred million to a billion, but that would probably be even less fun for me. Now I love it that when you go from zero to 10, you get to own that and then you get to hire someone to take you from 10 to hundred million. So, you know, that's a really big perk because the person that actually takes you from 10 to hundred million is just as smart as you, if not smarter, they're good at different things, but you own all of the company and getting in at 10 million is a much worse off deal for that person than the person that started from zero to 10. So recognizing who you are, self-awareness is probably the biggest lesson that I gained from that first business, recognizing what I'm good at, recognizing what I'm not good at and not pretending to do things that I'm not good at simply due to ego.
1: Just before in the UK, we went into lockdown in March. And a week, I think a week and a half before we went into lockdown, and I gave this talk. One of the things I talked about was around work and flexible work. I remember coming off stage and having this debate with a CEO about talking rubbish. Why would you do this? All that kind of stuff. Then we went into lockdown and we all kind of pivoted into this. And the statement that you just made right now kind of triggered that when you said it's a a nice, it's gone from being a nice to have to being very much standardized. Need to have, yeah. But you did this 12 years ago. I mean, my stats are right. You have people working in about 43 different countries. So from Correct. way back then, you were already seeing this slightly differently and you've obviously built your company around that. Even your mission statement, which you can, we can share what that is, is actually built around mm-hmm. that, which again is very, very different. Why yep. were you think about that way in advance 12 years ago, where to the point, like you said earlier, on, even VCs were like, this is a lifestyle business, this is not, this is ridiculous.
0: So I always like to look at trends. Actually, this will be a funny one because at this group called Fresh Founders, which I was a part of, which also Toby from Shopify is a part of as well. 2008, I think it was one of the first Bitcoin ATMs. So basically we had these guys that were showing up with like a Bitcoin ATM. can't remember when Bitcoin started. It was like a year into it. And I remember buying five Bitcoins for like, I don't know, it was like a hundred bucks or something like that. I still have those, which I think probably worth a lot less now, but they were worth a lot about three months ago. And I thought to myself, okay, like th- this trend line with regards to remote work, it's moving up and to the right. So we were projected to be 50% remote in the United States, which you can also just extrapolate to all Western countries by 2030. And we just did that basically seven years early. So it was just an acceleration of that trend. And that's how I like to look at it. Look at any of these trend lines and where they're going long-term, right? Are we going to have more telecommunications? In the next year, absolutely. Are we going to have more people connected to the internet? Absolutely. Are we going to be using cryptocurrencies in different ways? Are we going to be able to use blockchain contracts in different ways? Absolutely. Are we going to have remote work more often? You know, these are all trend lines that are moving up and to the right. And I just caught on to one that I was really excited about because for me, it allowed me the freedom and flexibility to be able to do what I wanted to do. And it also empowered everyone that worked for me to be able to have that same capability. So I thought it was a pretty good deal. And we stuck to that. And it was just a black swan event, obviously, with COVID that just triggered this absolute tsunami of remote work that existed over the last three years.
1: One of the things that I'm sure you've you've heard, normally being an entrepreneur can be very lonely. Now, adding remote work on top of that adds another layer of loneliness and being detached and away from people. How have you been able to combat and deal with, with that for yourself and with, with your company?
0: I think it's actually interacting with other entrepreneurs has probably been the best way for me to be able to combat that. The pandemic was not good for me. I can tell you, I gained like 20 pounds. I have a friend of mine that has a saying, which is, your bank account should go up, but your belt buckle shouldn't. So (laughs) basically, you need to be able to keep both of those things in sync. And my bank account went up, but I definitely was working 16-hour days. I was cut off from the gym. I was also cut off from other entrepreneurs, which regardless of whatever your perceptions are of entrepreneurship, there is a certain type of person who is, I think, like born to be an entrepreneur. I was fired or quit from almost every job that I ever had within about three months, because I was trying to basically do the business the way that I wanted it done, not the way that they wanted it done. So I recognized that I had to get into entrepreneurship just simply for pure survival, because I couldn't work for other people. And those types of people generally interacting together is where I would get my social stability from and uh, those people were completely disconnected from my life during the pandemic because they're not like close social friends, right? They're not like friends, like close friends and family that maybe you'd be able to interact with from time to time. But even then during the pandemic, I mean, I don't know what the story was in the UK, but in Canada, man, I don't think I saw any of my family members for a year during the lockdown, it was very, very hard in Canada. Probably, I think history will record that it was too hard in Canada, and we should have actually relaxed those things a lot more, because I think there's a lot of psychological damage that has been done. But thankfully, I had the money for therapists to be able to solve for those problems. If anyone thinks that money doesn't solve problems, they are wrong. It doesn't make you happier. It makes you happier. You just need to put it in the right places, like hire a therapist when you, you know, when you become depressed, as an example. Short answer, getting access to that that alumni, that those alumnist groups of just people that I could communicate those unique problems to is really what has kept me sane historically. And that was definitely pulled from me during the pandemic.
1: So how can companies who have all either gone completely digital or remote or even during the whole hybrid duality, How can they start to actually build some of that sense of community with their people, with their teams, especially as they're also learning to be global teams? Because a lot of companies have called themselves global companies, but they've never really Mm -hmm. been global companies like this where you're working in multiple time zones and multiple locations all at the same time. So that's another learning that a lot of companies are picking up as well. And they're struggling to to build that sense of community and, and culture, which people tend to go to work for, but no longer unite those fiscal environments anymore.
0: Well, that was the major thesis of the book that I wrote and, and I'm putting out in the next couple of months is that the companies before the pandemic that were remote actually figured out. It's not about whether you get pizza on Thursdays or whether you get a cake on your birthday. It's actually about the work that you do as an organization and not necessarily the people. So, And I know that that sounds very counterintuitive, not saying we're discounting the people. I'm saying we're optimizing for the work, for the vision, for the focus of the organization and making that and really getting everyone aligned towards that core mission, right? So what's that positive dent in the universe that you want to be able to make as an organization and communicating that to every single person in that company, making sure you're reinforcing it And making sure you're actually weeding out people that are not aligned towards that mission is absolutely critical. But outside of that, when I say outside of that, that's a big piece. Like That's a big presumption that I'm going to go into with my second piece of advice is when people are working remotely, they don't really recognize that it shouldn't be eight hours of Zoom calls every single day. That's not the way that people that worked remotely before the pandemic actually worked. They have a methodology, which I'm calling asynchronous management, which is the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them. So if you're in 43 different countries all over the world, you can't actually meet all at the same time. So what you do is you pre-record, as an example, a company address to everyone inside of the organization. And you could watch that live on the Zoom call, or you could watch it asynchronously when it's most opportunistic to you. But the way that you get people to participate is also asynchronous meaning they comment back they ask questions you respond to them they use forms like video they have oculus quest headsets that we interact you know that we that we interact with every single week actually for our chill out sessions and we also do intense moments of synchronous communication so when we choose to go synchronous we try to go as high granular as humanly possible in that synchronous communication So we do a company retreat every single year. We choose a location before COVID in 2020, it was going to be in Mumbai in India. And it's kind of a conference about the company. Everyone comes to one particular place. You get that human context, you build that trust between those different team members, and then people all go back to their corners and focus on deep work. So, Basically when we choose to go synchronous inside of asynchronous organizations, we do it as intensely as humanly possible because we know that we're choosing to do it as opposed to it being our natural state. So when you go into an office, everyone's like, "Oh, okay. What's going on, John?" "Oh, nothing, you know, my TI83 report didn't come in yesterday or something like that." I don't know what people in offices do. I've never been in one. But in actual in remote companies we all choose to do epic stuff together when we do meet synchronously. So we build as much intensity and excitement into those particular moments and get everyone aligned and more, and more importantly, realigned towards the mission of the company.
1: Based on your experience, would you say remote work suits particular industries, i.e. tech, as opposed to some other industries, just because of the nature of the work involved?
0: Yeah. So, Remote work really was born out of the open source movement. So platforms like WordPress, the company that runs WordPress is a famously remote company. Pretty much any programming language is an open source project. So those are all run default remote. And that's where its home was based because it also, by the way, is very easily transferable towards asynchronous management. You don't necessarily need to do like super intensive meetings synchronously about things. You can push a piece of code. Someone can make a suggestion about that. They can comment on it and you can do this work asynchronously very easily. It's definitely applicable to almost all industries. There's a fantastic study by McKinsey on which categories of work are most applicable towards digitization is what they call it. And the tech industry, I think think the full capacity of digitization for the tech industry is 87%. I think the 13% is sales. That's the only part that needs to remain in person. Everything else can basically be remote and, and by extension asynchronous. So absolutely. That is a very easy industry to be able to get into, but even, you know, I have a, someone that attended the running remote conference and this guy pours concrete foundations in Chicago and the teams obviously are on the ground and they're, they're not remote, but the support people are remote, the customer success people are remote, the sales people are remote, right? Like that infrastructure, about a third of his business is remote. And I think that, I mean, and, and also too, he's been able to deliver his product much more effectively and more cost effectively simply because... He's got a third of his workforce that is remote in comparison to all the other companies where, you know, they've got to get a big expensive office to be able to do all that work.
1: So one of the things that people tend to have in office spaces is visibility. You can can see people work, plays a part in there, and this goes back into the whole typical company culture. Yes, you should have people who are rewarded for the hard work they do. That doesn't necessarily happen. There's a lot of FaceTime sure. involved and all those kind of different things. Therefore, at least the whole visibility and the more you're seeing, the more you get to progress. Now, when you are yeah. in a remote world, a lot of that is not there anymore. It is more around your work and the input that's coming through. And sometimes even that work is sometimes lost because it's the team output that's coming out of a product being rolled out rather than individuals being highlighted or spotlighted sometimes depending on the leaders that you have. So how do people gain... I guess, visibility in a remote environment, how do you manage that? Or how do you nurture that in your organization like yours, for example?
0: Proof of work. So how you get visibility is to do good work and not to necessarily politic yourself towards (laughs) more power and responsibility inside of an organization. So this is something that I found really interesting because in research for the book, I also looked at on-premise organizations and offices and particularly inside of the large corporate world, and the amount of BS that goes on inside of these companies blows my mind. And I'm biased here because we're 150 people. So we're below, we're right below the classic Dunbar number. Dunbar basically says you can only really know about 150 people. And once you get over that point, and the definition of no is if you saw them at a bar, you would go and have a drink with them. Right. So that's what he defines as a friend. And once you get past that number, no matter how hard you try, people cease to become people and they start to become numbers. So by design, we've kept ourselves below that Dunbar number because if we're going to choose to go over it, then we want to do it actually in a really concerted way. Like we want to go from 150 to 250 because we'll lose some advantages from losing the Dunbar number. But The piece that I would really kind of focus people in on is focus on proof of work. I sit in these corporate meetings and there are people that just want more power, responsibility and people because it serves their personal goals. Goes back to ego, actually, at the end of the day, which is, okay, well, yeah, I'll take on this project or I'll take on this department or I'll absorb this department into mine should you really do that? Is that actually the best decision for the company? Or is that the best decision for you? And so I get very concerned with people that well, I wouldn't say let go of, but I'm very mindful of people that never say no to me. So like, oh, can you do this other job? Yep. Or they suggest, would you like to become the CEO of the company? I think I can do it, right? Like any of my, my VPs, if I said, well, what, why don't you become the CEO of the company? And if they said, yeah, I think I should do it, I immediately distrust them. And here's why is because I don't think they actually truly believe that. I think they're doing it just as a power grab, not necessarily because they think they're the best person for the job. The people, and I have actually done this in a lot of instances, the people that say that would be a terrible decision and here's why, of which I'm one of them, by the way, I'm not the CEO of the company. My co-founder, Rob, is. Those are the people that I'm like, oh, okay. Those people have that version of self-awareness to recognize what they're good at and what they're not good at, which is the very first question that you asked me, actually. This is crazy how it all kind of ties back into the same thing. That self-awareness to be able to recognize, I'm not actually really that good at that. And in the corporate world, there seems to be a lot of just acquisition of responsibility for career growth as opposed to focusing on doing really good work with what you're currently assigned.
1: You've been in this for a decade and a bit. You've been thinking about this for a while. So for you, this is basic common sense. You've got the clarity. For individuals who have worked in corporate environments, and this is the culture they've been used to and seen, making that mm-hmm. shift to be exactly what you just described right now, focus on Quality work, even being able to push back on things where you're like, "Why? Why should I do that? That's not my. That's not my bag. That's that's not what I do." Rather than just saying yes, which is again part of the culture. How do you actually make that shift? Because people struggle with that.
0: Yeah. So I've had a lot of instances where I'll be in the middle of a debate with someone, and I'll pause and think to myself, "Is this the right decision for the company, or, or do I just want to win this argument?" and That happens a lot. So it's like a constant process of checking your own ego to be able to say, is this guy possibly right? And maybe I've walked myself into a corner where I can't really put down my guns and just say, actually, you were right. (laughs) I was wrong. We should go with your direction. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the biggest piece of advice that I could give to anyone. And it goes against probably the general playbook of like rising up throughout the corporate ranks. But I don't really think it does, which is there's this concept called the level five executive in a book called Good to Great, which is a great book on understanding how companies can produce long term value for the people that own them. And they found that in all of these companies, they found the same phenomenon, which is the level five executive, someone who sacrifices their own well being for the survival of the organization. And those are the people that you probably want to be able to have in your organization as much as humanly possible. A great litmus test is offer them an opportunity that you know, and they know would be stupid for them to take advantage of because it would be detrimental towards the success of the organization and see whether they take it or not. That's probably a really, really good test. And again, that's just me kind of coming off the fly here. But that, and I've done that with people where I've asked them those types of questions. The people that say, oh, I would be a great fit are generally the people that you probably need to work out of your company, I would say. The people that are very self to the, towards themselves saying, hey, I don't think I'm the right person for this job and here's why. Here's another person that I think would actually be great in that particular position. Those are the people that you want to have in the company. I'll give you one very specific example. Our product manager, we were refactoring our entire code base. So we had time doctor one and effectively time doctor two. And we took a small team and we experimented in doing a complete refactoring. And for those that are listening that don't understand what that means, it means you've got your boat, which is like your piece of software. And over the years, you end up developing a lot of bugs inside of that boat, because there's a whole bunch of code that you know that if you get rid of it the software doesn't work anymore but you don't actually know what that software does it's a really really dangerous problem that ends up in almost all software development that you know that exists today so you have two choices you can either fix the current boat that you're in or you can build another one so we took a small team as an experiment and we built another boat at the same time that we were sailing the first one and about 6 months into this we were all coming to the conclusion that this new boat was way better and way easier to be able to build than our current boat, which was leaking and was falling apart. And we were spending more time fixing bugs than actually building new code. And so we came to the product manager and the, the other, there were two product managers. The one that was building the new boat was, very self-deprecating and super nice guy. And the other guy was kind of making fun of the new guy. But six months in, we said, Hey, you know, I think we need to actually switch over to Time Doctor 2. Like we need to move all of our users over to Time Doctor 2. And he put together a six hour presentation, breaking down why he thought Time Doctor 1 was the better choice, even though he invested his entire life over the last six months, building Time Doctor 2. So the guy that was in charge of building Time Doctor 2 said Time Doctor 1 is better and here's why. And we looked at all of that feedback but recognized immediately that you know Time Doctor 2 was the right choice almost everyone agreed and he was just he could always look at the other side of the coin and was seeing all of those advantages of this other piece of the software. And he also knew that this probably resulted in the end of his position <laughs> right in the company but he did what he thought was best for the company, not necessarily what was best for him. Those are the people that you want in your company. It's
1: a necessity for both on an organizational level and an individual level. You need both. Yeah. Like, you know, even like, you, a good example of how you feel when you don't have one? And you also have the example of what it's like for a company as well. So it's something that's a must day in, day out, but it's also not easy. Because a lot of times people would have thought, oh, I need to be an engineer, I need to be a coder, I need to have all these different college degrees behind me to be able to build an organization like Time Doctor. Rather than just going straight into it and figuring it out along the way and getting the right people to come alongside you. Even at a point in time when it wasn't the norm, that was also in the ecosystem and yet you did all that.
0: There's an element of adapt or die, to be completely honest with you. and entrepreneurship, not everyone gets a trophy, right? There are people that eat other people. This is a difficult thing to do. Just for the Running Remote conference, which happened two weeks ago, six people ended up getting COVID from our speaker pool right before the conference started. That was a bit of a kick in the teeth, right? By the way, never run a conference during COVID. I'm never going to run one again during COVID. But... Six months up until the conference, there were a whole bunch of people saying, hey, you know, I don't really want to come because you have to wear masks. And then three days before the conference started, the Canadian government allowed people to remove their masks. And what happened? We had a couple dozen attendees that ended up canceling their ticket because they didn't feel comfortable with masks being removed, you know, at the conference, right? So it's like uh, you, you've you got both sides of this in which we're getting hit. Six people getting COVID 48 hours before the conference starts. And all of those little details that work into it, the vast majority of businesses during COVID, right? If you ran a restaurant during COVID, you got kicked in the teeth in March of 2020. But the beauty of it is, and this is another great piece of advice that I got from my old supervisor in grad school, Morton Weinfeld, the one that said I was not very good at teaching, of which I wasn't. He said, and he's an expert at diaspora's. So whenever there's a natural disaster or a war, he would tell me the people that survive are the people that move and adapt. And you need to constantly adapt inside of entrepreneurship. If you're not adapting, you're dying. And that's the piece that I think everyone needs to recognize that this is not a participation sport. There are winners and losers and you need to recognize those things and you need to adapt quicker than your competitors. Otherwise, you're going to get eaten. I wish it could be nicer, by the way. I, I wish we could all exist in a happy, go-lucky world where, you know, everyone gets to stay at five-star hotels and, and sip sangria all night long. But unfortunately, that's not the way the world is. And, you know, you can get angry about that or you can adapt to that new
1: reality. something about it. Yeah. That's my last question would be, how do you define leadership?
0: I think leadership, to me, is almost synonymous with service of the people that work with you. And I almost think about um, management. By the way, I'm sure you've probably watched a lot of James Bond movies, right? Or you know of it. Probably everyone that's listening knows knows of James Bond movies. You've got uh, Money Penny right? The woman that basically manages James Bond, right? Right. She manages James Bond. But really, what her goal is, is to be able to allow someone like that to be able to be their greatest self. James, don't do this. This is a really bad idea. Uh, But he goes ahead and does it anyways, and he ends up running into trouble. Or, hey, I've got to do this for you. Otherwise, you're going to end up in this other big problem that you don't even know about yet. And I find myself running into the vast those same types of issues, particularly with the people that I'm managing, because the people that I'm managing, I'm thankful to be at a point where the people that we're hiring, that I directly manage, are absolutely extraordinary at everything that they do. And you can generally hire kind of like your mid-tier person or your low-tier person, but at least the people that directly report to me, I'm always hiring the best of the best. People that we don't care how much they cost. We just need them to be really, really good at executing on these particular things. And the vast majority of the time, those people act kind of like James Bond. Like they're really, really good at what they do and they're able to execute at so many things, but then I need to be able to control for them and make sure that they don't blow themselves up. So I think of it more in the context of service saying, what can I do to be able to make sure that those people are in as best of a light as humanly possible for everyone else inside of the organization, as opposed to me being in the best light. So a lot of the times, actually, I end up jumping on grenades. And it's a little bit different for me because I'm the founder of the company. So I can jump on those grenades all day long. I can't necessarily get fired. The ability for me to be able to say like, oh, that was my fault, is a big part of what I do throughout my job. So generally for me, leadership is service service to the people that directly work with you and allowing them to be able to become their truest selves and add in positively inside of the organization as much as possible. And sometimes at the expense of yourself adding into the organization. So letting them take the bow as opposed to yourself, even if you are responsible for 90% of that work.
1: It's really great definition and I guess it's not really a surprising one because we've talked a lot of, around self-awareness, ego, and some of the different things that kind of come through your story. So you're approaching leadership in that way, in that lens, kind of makes it even understand a bit more around how you can create a culture that you've created. Sure. With so many different countries, so many different people, and you have that ethos and the value system that you've been able to build because like you said, it's if you're dropping those grenades as a, as a founder, you're protecting your people, pushing the right ones to the front, trying to make sure you've got the people who are completely value aligned and mission aligned and bringing them in into that kind of environment, then you're creating a culture that works mm. and self-sustains itself in a really, really good way, which allows you to then just step back and let the CEO do what he's doing, and you can focus on what's really important to you as well, which is really good.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest question that any manager should have for the people that report to them is anonymous survey. Do I trust my manager or do, and I actually don't like the word manager. Do I trust my leader? Right. Right. One, like zero to 10, 10. I would, you know, I would do whatever for this person. Like they could, you know, they could take care of my kids type of thing or zero. I wouldn't trust them with, you know someone else's worst day. Like I think that that's the big piece that if you don't have trust inside of your organization, if the people don't trust you, you're not going to get anywhere. And and when I look back at the vast majority of the issues that we've had in, as an organization, they almost entirely connect to trust, mistrust in other team members and mistrust in the management saying I don't actually believe in them and It's so important to be able to get that out. I believe I have a a saying, which is the secret to life is being comfortable, having uncomfortable conversations. So trust is the core of management leadership. And then you need to be able to create an environment in which that lack of trust can be presented publicly and discussed. Because if you know that people don't trust you, but you can't actually do anything about it, you're like doubly screwed. (laughs) If you know that people don't trust you and then you can actually address it and hopefully repair that damage, at least you're on the road to recovery. And if you don't even know if people don't trust you, like if you don't know how much your team trusts you right now, that should be a big red flag. And you should really send out that survey to everybody anonymous and just see whether or not people have trust in the organization. I actually think that's better than um, the net promoter score as a core metric. Like how much do you trust your man? How much do you trust this organization? How much do you trust your manager? How much do you trust your direct reports? I think that's like such a huge undervalued piece of data that we measure quarterly with EMPS and it's pushed us towards so many uncomfortable conversations that have actually fixed some of the core dynamic issues inside of our company.
1: That's really good to hear. And super important. It's, um, it's an element that I know when I do some work organizations that we focus on a lot is trust, trust, uncomfortable conversations, because if you don't know what's going on, if you know how people feel, one, how do you respond to it? But two, you also need to know right? because you can live in, cloud cuckoo land <laughs> you think everything is all great because no one is saying anything to you and people will say like yeah but why are you making it anonymous you should have a culture where people can just say what they want i was like they're not going to do that because most cultures people are just not going to have the freedom to do that so you need to start somewhere you can try and build towards that which is a great north star to get to yeah but you need to start somewhere with the data set and then you can start to do some work around that
0: I have so many discussions about this with regards to anonymous versus non anonymous. And this is the constant pushback that I get is like, well, they should be able to tell me, listen, they're incredibly intimidated by you. You know, you, you can hire or fire them at a drop of a hat. I had a buddy of mine, I was doing some kind of free coaching for on remote work management and he would send a message I saw him send a message, a Slack message to one of his direct reports saying, "Hey, can we talk for 10 minutes tomorrow?" Just like that's the message on Slack. And I was like, "You do know that that guy is going to be freaking out for the next 24 hours, right?" Oh yeah. Like, why did you do that? <laughs> "Oh, well, we just need to talk about this report." Well, then say that. Say that you're talking about that. Be clear about that, get it out there. And I think that it's such a problematic issue that you need to provide people as much space as humanly possible to critique management and to critique leadership without necessarily feeling like they're going to get pushback on it. And even though it's very uncomfortable for you as a manager or a leader, and I'm going to talk about leadership actually more because I'm I have a better understanding of that. You need to keep your ego in check when they do critique you. And not necessarily, you know, go after them saying, well, actually, it was your fault that this didn't happen, right? You, you need to be able to listen, take that feedback, and at least create some type of basically constructive criticism, even if it isn't constructive, try to use it to be constructive with yourself. Because otherwise, you're just going to end up creating an environment where you're going to clap right back at them. And then they're not going to want to be able to share in the future. And the beauty of it is, at least if you're a founder, you know, I tell my team all the time, I don't need to be here. I can quit tomorrow and I'll still get my dividends. (laughs) So like, (laughs) so what do you guys want to do? I'm happy to do whatever you guys want me to do inside of the organization. I'm here to help. How can I be as helpful as humanly possible? And sometimes they'll actually tell me, hey, back off. You need to not be part of this because you're creating more problems than you're solving. And I take that feedback well, and I and I get out of there.
1: Man, so many things we could delve into. <laughs> but it's been such a really good conversation, and it's quite interesting, the, the journey you've kind of gone through to building what you're building right now and the approach that you're taking. Like I said right at the start, obviously a lot of people are, are leaning into you and, and tapping into you, the wisdom you have around building a remote company for the last 12 years or so. But I love when you even refer to the fact that you're, even though you've done this for the last 12 years, you're you love this. You're in this, you're researching two, three, three hours a day. This is your, this is your zone. So even that was quite important because it's very easy space to rest in your laurels and be like, I know this. I sure. know, yeah. We've been there, done that. That's about it. But you're still in it and you're still learning and you're bringing all that alongside the experiences that you have. And a lot of times we can get complacent. So yeah everything I've read about your journey and everything we're able to talk about has just been really, really appreciated. So I just appreciate your experience and you sharing your story today.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a really great exchange. And uh, it's uh, even this conversation just kind of brought up a lot of other parts of myself and my reflection upon my ego. Entrepreneurship you have to have incredibly egotistical people in order to be able to be an entrepreneur because you have to have that big, hairy, audacious reality distortion field saying, Oh, I'm going to build a rocket to Mars and I'm going to get the world off of fossil fuels. Right. So you have to have that, but counterintuitively you also need to be able to like put it in a little box and lock it away when it needs to be locked away. So that's a really difficult process for me and still something that I'm trying to kind of figure out. But I think any work that you can do into becoming a little bit more self-aware of yourself and even recognizing that you have that is probably not a wasted effort.
1: It's a major key. Yeah? That's what I call it. It's the more you can lean into that understanding of who you are, what you're about, how you see things, the different links between both the future and the past, because they're always linked, which leads you to where you're right now. It's, it's really, really good. And it's not always easy. It's, it's not always, easy, always an easy no, I slip thing to, be able to pull things daily. apart like right that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I slip <laughs> up daily, but it's just one of those things of saying, OK, Liam, is this you wanting to be right or is this the right decision? Right. Like that's you should whenever you're in a heated exchange, not even a heated exchange, a debate about, you know, the way the business should run. And I hope that you're in those daily. You should sit back and you should reflect upon that and and really say, okay, well, is it the people's fault or is it my fault? And that's something that I would just have everyone think about as they're building their companies.
1: Thank you, Liam. This is Everyday Leadership. See you next week.